turn the Word of God this evening to Isaiah chapter 66, the last chapter of Isaiah. It's good to see you here tonight, first prayer meeting of the year. I am a little jealous of what's going on in Northern Ireland right now. The first full week of January is always the week of prayer over there, and so all the ministers and students and elders that are able to uh, get there, uh, if their work permits them, and when they all come together to pray, begin the year with a week of prayer. And so Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday is given over to prayer. And even more so than uh, our own two weeks of presbytery business and prayer, which is half a day. So we we have prayer in the morning and then business in the afternoon. This is both times, all through the morning, all through the afternoon, seeking the Lord. And it's always a, a very refreshing time. So uh, it's going on right now. Reverend Wagner's there. He's not with us. He's over there in Northern Ireland. And uh, the Reverend Kimbrough also from Winston-Salem is there too. And I've noted that they're doing a little traveling, preaching around number of our churches over there and encouraging them from the word but I just uh, singing that hymn also reminds me that probably the kind of thing they're singing uh, right this week praying for the the fullness of the spirit of God longing for divine intervention as they begin another year and uh, as I say it's as I look back as a student being there there was always you know it was always a good time but there was always at least one or two sessions. There's two sessions a day, and there was always just one or two that went from uh, okay or good to the Lord met with us. The Lord met with us. Um, and you, if you can have that, you you never forget it. And every year it was the same. It was either at least one, maybe two, and it really you sensed that the Lord was getting a hold of us and dealing with our hearts. And that's the best way to begin the year. So, I kind of wish I could be there, but I'm not. We're here, though. Not that I'd, I'm not happy to be with you. <laughs> Don't misunderstand, but it's always a highlight of the year. Isaiah 66 is where we want to read tonight. And uh, there's obviously matters for prayer. We start a new year. We pray for the Spirit of God to come upon us. There are those that need our prayers as well. I was talking to Carolyn Bowling earlier in the day, and brief, very briefly with Bob, um, but he's in intensive care, as some of you know, if you've read the email. Um, stable, he is stable, though Carolyn is concerned, but he is stable. Her, She's just gone home uh, a short time ago. Uh, they wouldn't let her stay uh, through the night in the intensive care unit, so he, Bob's there on his own, and just, just pray that he's stable and doesn't end up in a ventilator. That would be the kind of prayer at the forefront of our minds. Don't let him get on a ventilator, but to recover and stabilize his blood oxygen levels are relatively stable now, so just pray that that would continue. Of course, it's all come in the middle of Carlin trying to deal with family as well, and uh, the passing of her brother Billy, uh, again, was no surprise. I, I went, had the opportunity to see him twice went over to Spartanburg to the hospital to visit with them 
to try and communicate the gospel, and um, but he's, there's nothing we can do at this stage, and trust that something got through, but he is gone now, and Carolyn has to deal with that as well. So pray for the Lord to strengthen her and give her the opportunity to do that. Isaiah 66, I want to read a few verses here from the closing chapter of this great prophecy. And it is tremendous. The evangelical prophet uh, who puts before us such wonderful truths of the, uh, the dawn of the, the age of Messiah when Christ comes and what can be expected. We come to the last chapter. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor, and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. He that killeth an ox is as if he slew a man. He that sacrificeth a lamb as if he cut off a dog's neck. He that offereth an oblation as if he offered swine's blood. He that burneth incense, as if he blessed an idol. Yea, they have chosen their own ways, and their soul delighteth in their abominations. I also will choose their delusions, and will bring their fears upon them, because when I called, none did answer. When I spake, they did not hear. But they did evil before mine eyes, and chose that in which I delighted not. Hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, said, Let the Lord be glorified, but he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. A voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice of the Lord that rendereth recompense to his enemies. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Who hath heard such a thing? Who hath seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth, saith the Lord? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, saith thy God? Rejoice ye with Jerusalem, and be glad with her, all ye that love her. Rejoice for her, joy with her, all ye that mourn. For her. I'll end there at verse 10. We trust the Lord will bless his word. Let's, let's seek the Lord. God, we're gathered here in this place, and it may seem insignificant to the world, but your people are marked by the fact that they call upon your name. Everywhere in Scripture, this is true. Right from Genesis chapter 4, then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And all through Scripture and all through the language that we have, even concerning that which was instructed to David and to Solomon and the kings, it really comes down to whether they called upon the name of the Lord. And so, God, we're here. It's an expression that we are a people that call upon thy name. We do this because thou hast given us life. We are thy people. We are the sheep of thy pasture, and we long to hear the shepherd's voice. God, I pray that every one of us would be helped to more fervently, more earnestly, more fruitfully call upon the name of the Lord. 
We ask God that you will not just sustain our interest and love for the Scriptures this year, but inflame and enlarge our heart for the place of prayer and communion with our God in prayer. We thank, Lord, of our brethren in Northern Ireland and the week of prayer and how it sets the tone for the year. And to think, Lord, of, of just what that signifies when we consider churches that come together, ministers that come together, give a whole week over for one purpose, to pray. And God, we are thankful that Thou hast sustained this. Think of all the pragmatic approaches to church work today, and they would quickly cast away as a fruitless endeavor just gathering in a room to call upon God. Lord, we pray, bless our brethren. Give them tokens for good. Give them encouragement. Give them, O God, blessing. I pray even for our own brethren from our own presbytery that are there, that they might catch something of the blessing of God this week. Reverend Wagner, Reverend Kimbrough, that you'll encourage them also in the time that they have there in Ulster. And God be with us too. We need thee, Lord. We need thee here. We pray for our Wednesday nights. Give us good Wednesday nights this year. Give us help in the place of prayer. Make it easy. And we pray that you will come, Lord, and cause each one to have a a sense of purpose every Wednesday. I'm going there to meet with God, to call upon the Lord, and the Lord will hear the cries of his people. So may tonight help set the tone for the year, encourage us from thy word, and do remember the matters that burden us in our church family. Help especially Carlin and Bob. Keep your hand upon him and grant, Lord, that you will strengthen him so that even by tomorrow morning he's in a much better way. Hear prayer. Draw near. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. A surefire way to be discouraged as a Christian, and of course there are many ways we can be discouraged as Christians, but a surefire way, I think, is to walk by sight. To walk by sight. To judge everything that you see in such a way where you're just looking at what it is you can perceive as going on. If you do that, you might despair as to the, the church of Jesus Christ, especially in America. And I think there's reason for that. I mean, oh, I'm always tempted to go sort of detour into the little things that you get a, a window into uh, from week to week that are put before you. Uh, and really, really, sometimes I see things. It happened, I think it was Monday, I saw something. I'll just say this, that you see these things and you say, Lord, why have you not burned up America yet? I mean, this is awful. If this is the church, if this is the professing church, why are we still here? It's, it's, it's horrendous, which, I'll, again, that's not my purpose tonight, to uh, lament over our condition as a nation. But you look at it and you, you judge by, by sight and you despair and you think, this is awful. God must, he must judge us. You might look at, you know, the advancement of the Great Commission. Is it actually advancing? Our nations being taken for the gospel, our people being converted, our churches being planted, to what degree? Is Islam thriving more than Christianity? Is some other uh, movement having more success than the preaching of the gospel? Maybe if we looked by sight, we might think that way. So the answer to this, beloved, is to stop looking at what we see and actually come back to God's Word and allow that to dictate, 
Because in God's Word, we have the plan. We have, as it were, God giving little windows at times where He allows us to peer in and see what it is that He is doing and going to do. And when we look through with the eye of faith into what God is doing, then it changes everything. We are able to see. Look, again, I haven't read all of this chapter, but I encourage you to do so because this chapter, again, is is coming to the close and Isaiah is, is, as it were, he's opening up what, what can be expected for the future of God's kingdom. He's opening it up in such a way that you say, wow, that's going to take place? And some of it we, we read here, you can, you can see how he deals with it in the context of worship. Really, that's, that's what's going on here. It's all tied into worship. You have true worship and false worship and what goes on around that. Verses 1 and 2 is true worship. Again, they had always tied the presence of God to a particular location and place. And he's asking, I mean, you build a house, you know, you think, you think, this, you think this is sufficient to contain God? But, but here's something, here's something for you to consider. I am going to dwell with the one who is poor and contrite. I'm going to make my presence known in the one that is humble. And of course, that was true already, but it, we were singing about Pentecost and the Spirit of God coming, and you, you get a window into that right here, where the presence of God becomes more of a greater, is, is, is greater in terms of extent. The change between Old Testament and New is one of extent. And what you see in little pockets in the Old Testament now becomes the experience of normal people when you see the Spirit of God coming upon Gideon and coming upon these other characters that you read of. Now you open up in the New Testament, you see that they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Is the extent of it. There's this broadening extent of God making Himself known powerfully in his church. And so this is what he is pointing to, and it's those that tremble at his word. There's false worship, verse 3 and 4. He that killeth an ox as if he slew a man is as if he slew a man. Because this is what's happening. He's, he's, he's falsely worshiping God. And so he's coming, but it's in a false spirit. It's all wrong. It's all, he's corrupt. His ways are corrupt. His worship is corrupt. And so though he slays an ox, he might as well have killed a man. That's as wicked. I mean, this is strong language. God is correlating false worship with some of the, the most awful crimes that could be committed. Again, you're coming with your ox, but it's like you slew a man. You, you come sacrificing a lamb, it's as if you cut off a dog's neck, an unclean animal. Same is true, he that offered the oblation, as if he offered swine's blood. You know how repugnant that would be to the Jew. He that burneth incense, as if he blessed an idol. They have chosen their own way. This is false worship. And it was rampant in the prophet's day. Now, what happens then? Verse 5 tells us that there's going to be a, a, a tension, a struggle, a, a battle, as it were, between the true and the false. This is all looking forward. I mean, this is, this is New Testament. You come to verse 5, you see what happened in the book of Acts. Verse 5, hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word. That takes you back to verse 2. These are the true worshipers. Your brethren, your countrymen, the people that live among you, that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, said, let the Lord be glorified. So you see what they're doing. They have this this particular hatred for the true worshippers. They reject, they cast them out. They're they're, uh, excommunicated, looking for the word there. 
and they act in God's name. They, they do it as if they're doing it in God's name. Now Jesus warned his disciples of this very thing. There will come a time when they'll cast you out of the synagogues and the, they will think that they do God's service. Well, it's prophesied right here in verse 5. And it's, it's between the true and the false. You go to Philippians chapter 3 again. You see that, the, 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 those who, that we are the true worshippers that, that worship in and through Christ. We are the true circumcision that Paul describes in Philippians. So that this is, this is all pointing forward to something that's going to take place in the future, in this tension that exists between true worshipers and false. But God is going to deal with them. And you see that. He's going to make them ashamed. Verse 6, I think, and again some may debate here, but verse 6 may be pointing to the very fall of Jerusalem itself, a voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice of the Lord that rendereth recompense to his enemies. The destruction, the fall of that place where God was once so uh, known is all going to crumble. So then what happens? What happens? What happens when, when the city crumbles? What happens when, when the place where God was known falls apart? What happens when those who were given the truth, given the oracles of God, become false worshippers. What's the prospect? What's the prospect for the remnant? You know, the, the ones that tremble at the word. What's the prospect for those that are, that are anticipating this collapse of pure worship? And what can they expect? Now, you, know, you read then to the end of verse 6, and you think, well, this, this, is, this is not good. This is not good. The future looks bleak, but that's not what happens. You get to verse 7, and you have this, this remarkable language all the way through, I think probably about verse 14 or so, you know, before it starts speaking of judgment again. But all these verses, before she travailed, she brought forth. So before there was any real sense of the pangs of birth, the child was born. And there has to be seen in this some sense of the reversal of the curse. Because that's what the woman was told, wasn't it? That she would, in sorrow, she would bring forth children. So now you have this indication. It's kind of like when God was working and during the time when the Hebrews were in bondage and captivity and Pharaoh wanted to destroy, especially the sons, and the midwives come and say, well, they're lively. Then, you know, they've given birth before we get there. Whether that was actually happening, you know, is debatable. But there's an indication that that day will come. That children are being born before there's any real sense of the agony of it. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Who hath heard such a thing? Who hath seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once again, the earth to bring forth? What was the whole creation mandate? That it might multiply and fill the earth, of course, with man, but also all creatures and all living things were to fill the earth, and man was to tend to all of that and oversee all of that. But it wasn't going to take a day. It's going to take centuries and centuries. Now it seems like this is happening in a day. Or a nation be born at once. Abraham's told he's going to be a father of a nation. It takes centuries before there's a nation formed. But now it's seemingly like there's a nation born at once. What's happening here? What is being prophesied? It's looking to 
that era, when the Spirit came, after the ascension of Jesus Christ, in which this untold, unprecedented advance of the kingdom of God is unleashed upon the world. So that by the time, oh, maybe, let's say, 20, 30 years, and Paul is writing to the church at Rome, he says that, that, that their faith is known throughout the whole world. The whole known world knows what God is doing in, in that great city, Rome. God is doing something. And people are being saved, and the church is being advanced. And so while there is this conflict, and there are people, verse 5, trying to hate you and excommunicate you and do it in God's name, yet it's going to advance. And that's what we see. That is what we see. And so, again, we, we then ask ourselves, okay, look at it today, 2,000 years on. Have, are, are we losing now? Has, is, does God advance His church for the purpose for it all to shrink back and shrivel up and disappear? I guess it might depend on your eschatology and what you're anticipating. But this passage, go on and read on in it and give it some good study, and you will see, you will see that God is filling His people with a sense of hope, not discouragement. Verse 9, shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth? Saith the Lord, shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb? Am I going to do half a job? I'm going to complete rejoice ye with Jerusalem and be glad with her. What, the city? The city where the problems are? The city where the sin is? Well, again, you can take this a couple of ways. You may take it as to the restoration of Jerusalem if you're so inclined and God's work among the Jews in a future day. Or you may see it in regard to the, the citizens of the New Jerusalem, all God's people. And we can rejoice with all of them because of what God is doing, being glad with her, all ye that love her, rejoice for my joy with her, all ye that mourn for her. So there's a mourning too. Mourning doesn't go away. It's, it's, it's this longing for this all to, to be fulfilled. So, as we come to pray in just a moment. Before we do so, I want to just hang a few thoughts on something that just struck me at the end of verse 8, where the language, and you know what I do, I tie my thoughts around three words, as Zion travailed, as Zion travailed, for as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Now, this is encouraging. As soon as she travails, she brings forth children. God is working in a, in a remarkable way, and is indicating that this is happening. I think, let me just stop for a moment. Because again, I think we, 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 the, the hundreds of years, the hundreds of years that passed prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there was no advancement, not meaningful advancement of God's kingdom on earth. It was all just tied into almost one one geographic location, by and large, by and large, not exclusively, but mostly. And then you, you go to the other side of his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and it's, it's everywhere. This, his kingdom has advanced everywhere. And we are in this. Now, John Gill says of the travail, I'll just 
I'll point out a couple of things. He said, this is to be understood of the pains which gospel ministers take in preaching the word. He goes on to say, it may also design the earnest prayers of the church and its members, striving and wrestling with God, being importunate with him, that the word preached might be useful for the good of souls. And particularly their earnest and fervent prayers for the conversion of the Jews, which will soon be brought about when a spirit of grace and supplication is not only poured on them, but upon the saints in general to pray fervently and earnestly for it. So there's two things then he sees in this, or whether it's actually there or it's kind of an application of the text, whatever the case, that's where I want to go just for a minute. This, this idea of traveling in preaching and in prayer. Because God is promising this kind of, not, not quite instant success, but this seemingly, comparatively, advance where there's no real pain and there's this advance And the church of Jesus Christ has seen windows like this repeatedly. Repeatedly. We call it revival, right? We call it revival because it's not the norm. It's not what normally happens. There's this awakening, this outpouring that changes everything almost overnight. And that's what happened on the day of Pentecost. And that's what happens at any time when the Spirit is poured forth in power ever since then. Because everyone records the same thing. The preacher's not really doing anything differently. And the sermons aren't really constructed any differently. And what the church itself is doing, by and large, isn't any different to what she was doing before. But there's this life and spiritual energy and spiritual interest and complete transformation of the experience of God's people that then seems to overflow into the community and transform it. It's revival. And it can happen overnight. I say it can happen overnight. It's a little like any business success. We talk about overnight success. And it's not really the full picture, is it? Because you have some guy who's been like pounding away at this thing for maybe years or preparing himself with great labor and difficulty. And then it just seems, you know, it just explodes or the business just booms in a way that appears overnight. Anyway, travailing and preaching. Now just touching a couple of headings here. What does it mean to travail and preaching? Thinking about that when John Gill said that. First, resisting the temptation to preach an emaciated gospel. It would be easy for preachers, and there's some preachers or budding preachers here, but it's easy to get into a place where you, you just emaciate the gospel. You get up and you just say, you know, Jesus Christ died for sinners and rose again, you need to believe in him, and then you kind of, you, um, you embellish it with the experience, right? That there's nothing of any substance, but you embellish it with the experience. So you keep this very simple, emaciated message, you embellish it with the right music and lighting and experience, and that's how the church goes forward. No. How can that have the blessing of God? How can an emaciated gospel have the blessing of God? How can it be that God would, would, would say, okay, you've stripped, you've stripped it all. <laughs> I've put all this truth in here that's significant about my son and about who he is and what he is doing. And you've stripped it all away and then you've put in, you've put in all your work, all your wisdom. That can't have the blessing of God. It doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. I believe much of it looks like him that kills an ox as if he slew a man. It's false worship. And God hates it. He hates it. 
He has absolutely no time for it. I mean, you're coming with your offering, you say, look, Lord, here, bless it. And he hates it because it's not. It's not what he's called for. So when you preach, if you're called to preach, you don't emaciate the gospel. You, you see the text and you try, you dig, you dig as a man for treasure. And you say, oh, show me more of the glories of your son. I want to see him. I want to see the significance of him. So then you can put the fullness of the gospel before the people who come to hear it. So we resist that temptation. We resist the temptation to avoid a discriminatory gospel. Yes, where I get up, or any preacher gets up, and you preach in such a way where no one gets offended, right? It's like you just kind of, it's a message that you sort of, that flies, flies over the heads of people, and you can kind of grab at the bits that you want, you know? It's just it's kind of sent across your, just the top of your head, and you can say, oh, I like that bit, I'll grab that. But that's not what Nathan did when he went before David, is it? There's no ambiguity. It's like, thou art the man. There's a sense of the penetrating, the penetrating message so that every one of us feel it. We weren't, weren't looking for it, maybe. We weren't thinking about it. We we're sitting here in our finder place, usually sitting in your similar regions, let's say, as I look down on you. Uh, sometimes I look and say, oh, where are they? And they've moved. <laughs> but that's not usually the case. You're usually in your, your, your place. But then God, God comes. It's like this penetrating Yes, the preacher doesn't want to avoid or so craft his message to avoid that discriminatory part of the word. Resisting the temptation to think it can be done in the flesh. All I need to do is study harder. That's all. All a preacher needs to do is just study harder and study the crafting of it and the compiling of it and the ordering of it and all the rest of it. No, 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 no. And don't you forget it. Don't become sermon. I think Gavin Beers, Reverend Beers made mention of this. He's not the first to talk about it. Sermon tasters. Sermon tasters. That was a well, kind of what they mean is that was a well-crafted message. I enjoyed that. Is that what we do? We go to church to enjoy it? Or, or go, to, go to God's house to have a confrontation with God? A confrontation with God himself. That's what I pray for this place. That's what I pray for. Not, not some sense of, oh, isn't that, isn't that a nice thought? Or isn't that an interesting point? And isn't, I, I get it. That, that happens. Inevitably, you can't avoid that. If you're saying anything of substance, and if you're teaching, you're going to have those elements. But, but you don't want that to be the kind of takeaway, do you? You don't want the takeaway to be, oh, that was interesting. You want the takeaway to be, oh, how the Lord met with me there. It can't be done in the flesh because I can't do that. No preacher can. God needs to do that. And then resisting the temptation to be silent. Here's where it's more applicable to all of you. To travail in preaching, you go even in your evangelism. You need to resist the temptation to be silent. I need to do that too, to be silent. And two ways. The assumption that everyone is saved, which would be easy to do in Greenville, believe it or not. You know, you go around, you see all these kind of markers of Christian influence and you think, well, maybe they are saved, you know, and you then are silent. Or the fear of what people might think, which may be more to the point. We need to resist that. So travail and preaching. There's a, there's a bit of labor. That's the point. Amidst the advance of the church, there's a little bit of travail, right? There is. It's not the complete removal of travail. It's just that 
with a little bit of travail, there's an advance to the church. And this is where you need to pay attention. It's not that we're doing all the work, but we have to keep to these things and others. And also travail and praying, very, very quickly. Travail and praying. We, we need to do this as well. As Zion travailed. In what way, spiritually, do we see that travail? It's especially notable in the place of prayer, isn't it? A sense of travailing. A sense of the, the kind of bearing this burden and endeavoring to see something brought from death to life. And so to travail in praying, we might say, first, we must embrace the difficulty of real prayer. There's a difficulty in real prayer. Now, you know this. You can come tonight. You're here. Praise God you're here. But I can do it and you can do it equally where, okay, I'm going to bow my head and I'm going to pray. And words come out. Words come out. But there's a difficulty to real prayer, to pray in your praying, to, to, for the words formulated to be an expression of a concern and a longing. For the words really to be illustrating what's felt in the heart, that's different. Anyone can put together words. Anyone can memorize a way to address God. And the words come out, but there is, they're empty. They are empty. And so it's easy, because you've been at this long enough, most of you, you've been at this long enough to pray empty prayers, just as I have. So to, to feel, to, to actually have my mouth reflect some real felt concern in the soul, that's hard work. There's a travail there. To have more heart than words, more scripture than eloquence. This is important. Also, bearing the weight of feeling the lostness of souls, not only embracing the difficulty of real prayer, but bearing the weight of feeling the lostness of souls is, is, a, is a horrifying thing to be overcome by, by someone's lostness. It's a whole lot easier to get through your life and be numb to that. And I'll be honest with you, I, I am there. I can think of people in my life and I have become numb. I don't, I don't feel like I once felt about them. And they're still not saved. I've become numb. So it was a time where you, you're pouring out your heart. You're begging God. You're looking for opportunities. You're, you're trying. You're bearing the travail. You're, you're longing to see this birthed. In some instances, we've seen the Lord work, and God is saved, and we rejoice in that, and you say, praise God, He's answered prayer. We have seen it. So thankful to be able to know that and jot that through the history of my own experience. But there are others I was, really, I was really struck by this yesterday, praying with the family. They didn't know anything about it because they can only hear what's going out of my mouth. But in my mind, this is what I'm dealing with. And there are family members. I can't, it's been a long time since I felt the weight 
of their lostness. And maybe you can say the same. So you're coasting through your Christian experience while they're lost and you don't feel it. It is Christ-like, Christian. Dear child of God, it is Christ-like to take on that burden. For he looked over the multitude and he had compassion on them. And ultimately he offered himself on the cross as the greatest expression of burden-bearing we have ever seen in this world. But then we see those who fall. You see Paul, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel that they might be saved. I could wish myself accursed from Christ for my kinsmen according to the flesh. That's, that's what I'm talking about. I could wish myself accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. It's too comfortable if we know nothing about that. Something's wrong. We are in cruise control. We are kind of just drifting. God has not put us on this earth to be immune to travail. Time's gone. I think I've said enough. We, uh, as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. And I'll be true of this church. Be true of this church. You know, something happens here on Wednesdays and other occasions for prayer. Something happens when it feels like there's a, there's, like, like a woman trying to give birth, you know, the, when the church starts to feel like that, those pangs and pains and and that's expressed in prayer she brings forth her children that's what we need Lord help us let's sing and then we'll pray